Hey, everyone. Welcome to Queerly Recommended, the podcast where we recommend queer films, books, TV shows, and more. I'm Tara Scott, and I review queer women's fiction at the Lesbian Review and Smart Bitches Trashy Books. And I'm Chris Bryant, a contemporary romance writer for Bold Strokes Books. It is Pride Month. I don't know if y'all know. Have you been to Target? Have you seen the t-shirts? We are thrilled that we're joined by a special guest today. She has more than 65 books, many of which are my own personal favorites. She's also the founder and publisher of Bold Strokes Books. Welcome to Radcliffe. Hi, Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. So I was thinking for Pride, it would be kind of fun to talk to somebody who both writes and publishes. You've done a lot. You've seen a lot. You know a lot about kind of the roots of our literature. This is something that I care pretty deeply about. So I wanted to start by asking you, what do you see as the roots of lesbian publishing? What are those books or authors or publishing companies that if they didn't come around, we just couldn't get to where we're at today? I think that we have to go back about 70 years, which is a really short period of time when you think about the history of literature or the history of any specific genre. Mm-hmm. Um, romances, for example, are probably 220 years old if you want to go back to Austin. Mm-hmm. But for us, for the history of our fiction, we're looking at the late 1940s and early 1950s in terms of first seeing queer fiction in the popular media. In fact, if we're all kind of familiar with the term pulp fiction, mm-hmm. which was very popular in the 1950s. And basically, a lot of these books were published by Fawcett um, and some of the big traditional publishers who were publishing paperback books. I would not say that that's the root of today's queer publishing world, but it was the first time that many individuals still alive today saw themselves in any form whatsoever in printed format. Mm-hmm. Um, Therese, Therese wrote Women's Barracks in 1949, which was the first time it was really lesbians in a printed format. It was pulp fiction, but it was a very interesting book that was based on some of women's experience in World War II in, in Europe. And then, of course, Ian Bannon and some of our other legendary authors were writing in the 1950s. And when we go back and we look at those books, we say, well, they're not the lesbians of today. They didn't have happy endings for the most part. A lot of them were unhappy individuals. And yet, if you talk to Anne, and I've talked to her, and perhaps you've talked to her too, she got bushels full of letters thanking her for writing those books so that we could see ourselves at all in any form, in in a form of media. But I think that the real roots of today's publishing world began right around the same time as what at the time we called the gay revolution, which was Stonewall in the late 1960s. And then in the early 1970s, there was an explosion of queer publishing. And NIAID was formed in 1972 by Barbara Greer and her wife, Donna McBride, and Muriel Crawford and her wife, um, Anita Marchand. So those four women formed what became NIAID, which for the lesbian publishing history, I mean, that was really, without NIAID, I think that we would not be where we are today. 
that was a publishing company that created popular fiction for the average reader, just like most commercial fiction today is geared towards a large part of the population. And that's what this company did and gave a home to some of the authors who became legendary. K.B. Forrest, for example, Sarah Aldridge. And that, that's the real roots, I think, of mm -hmm. our fiction today. Then there were many other publishers at the same time. Allison came along in the late uh, 1970s, early 1980s, and they were primarily publishing gay fiction. They did sometimes publish lesbian fiction. So they, I, there are roots began there, but there were many, many small feminist presses. There were other lesbian presses that were around for a while in the 1970s and the 1980s, but Nyad persisted into the 1990s. And so I think that we have to give a great deal of credit to that publishing company, to Barbara Dreer's vision, to the authors who published with Nyad. And then we saw a new revolution in the 1990s. It's kind of like every 20 years, things really change. Yes. And I think, I, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about that recently because I think we're seeing another watershed moment in publishing and probably have been seeing it in the last few years. But certainly in the 1990s, late 1990s, with the advent of two things, really, print-on-demand publishing, which allowed small presses to be able to financially publish queer fiction because they didn't have to have a lot of capital to invest in inventory. And fan fiction exploded mm -hmm. in the world of, of lesbian fan fiction which hadn't really existed before. And it brought a whole new generation of readers to what had always been there, but they had no experience with it. So I think that those, those are the kinds of things over the course of 20 years. And then of course, the ebook explosion and the audiobook explosion and all of those things that have really moved queer publishing to the point it is today. What is the first LGBTQ book that really meant something to you or made a difference uh, in your own life? There's, I have to say two, you know, I can almost never say like one. Right. And the first was Odd Girl Out by Ann Bannon. And I found it in a drugstore. I grew up in a small town in upstate New York. And uh, my mom was a pretty voracious reader. We used to pick up, you know, books from the, the drugstore, the five and dime. And this was one of those Pulp Fiction books that was published by Fawcett at the time. And, I, you know, they cost like maybe 15 cents, maybe a quarter. I don't know how I got a hold of it, but I was 12. And at that time, at that point in my life, the only thing I really knew for sure was I was different. But I really didn't have any language for it. It was, you know, it was an era when there were no words, especially positive words for kids who were queer. But I recognized myself in that book, or at least I recognized that some of the feelings I had were reflected in that book. So it was very positive in that sense. As I said, a lot of those, the pulp fictions, didn't have happy endings because the publishers, in fact, wouldn't let them write happy endings. I mean, they couldn't write happy endings. The lesbians never got to keep the girl. And that was, you know... It, looking back, you'd think, well, that's terrible. But it wasn't as terrible as not being able to see yourself at all. And I think that you have to kind of put everything in context. So that book was really important for me at a very young age. But the book that really made 
an enormous difference was the first romance that Nyad published, which was The Latecomer by Sarah Aldridge. And it was the first lesbian romance that I had ever seen and ever read. And it was just kind of life-changing that here in print was a love story. And I'd been reading since I was could read, you know, however old I was, two, three, I don't know. And I read everything. And I loved romances. And of course, all of the romances I read were straight. And this one wasn't. You know, looking back now, if you read it, it's relatively short. I mean, Nyad's, Nyad's sort of model was always relatively short, probably less than 50,000 words. So all almost everything I published was pretty much on the short side. But And it was a pretty straightforward, uncomplicated romance. But there it was on the page, two women who met and fell in love. So that was that was amazing to me. And I kind of haunted the bookstores from that point on, you know, trying to find every single one that I could. And I'm sorry that we don't have, you know, video for this, but all the books behind me are lesbian romances that I've collected since 1970. And there's about 1500 copies Wow. Um, that, you know, that it was my passion. Books Mm -hmm. have been my passion for a long time. So those would be the two books that made a huge difference for me. So after, no, we both have follow-up questions. I know. I'm so excited. I was (laughs) like, both excited. (laughs) (laughs) So is that like reading that, those books, is that what inspired you to actually do it yourself? Like, that's what it was for me. I was like, I, I read a bunch of romances, you know, I did the, the straight romances. I did the bodice rippers. I did all of that. And when I finally found Lesvik, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to try this. I think I'm, I think I can do this. So how, how was your process? I didn't really think about, I never wrote for anyone other than myself. It was never my intention to publish. I never conceived of myself as an author. I wrote things from the time I was really young where I could put girls in situations where I couldn't myself in my life be. So I was writing about astronauts and girl police officers and girl soldiers and girl, you know, everything that I couldn't be when I was 10. And then, you know, once I got to high school and college and I was, you know, headed towards medicine, I didn't have time for any of that. And then I read these books and I, there weren't enough of them. There were very few. I mean, in the early days, in the first year, Nyad probably published three books. And not until probably the late 70s did they start to publish a book a month and then two books a month and then three books a month, which seemed like amazing. But you can read those in three days. So I started writing because there wasn't enough of what I wanted to read. And it was it was comforting to me to be able to write these stories about women meeting each other and falling in love. I mean, I love romances, the whole process of, you know, meeting and learning about one another and, you know, finding strength in one another. So I wrote those, I started writing when I was a surgery resident and it it wasn't anything conscious other than the fact that I really, it made me feel good to do it. And I think it helped balance some of the stresses in my life at the time. And once I started, and that was in 1980, I never stopped, but I didn't have a lot of time. So I would usually write on vacation. So I would write, you know, probably a book or two a year. And I would just 
put them away in, in a drawer. And that's where they stayed until probably almost 20 years later. And then, you know, some other things, you know, happened and I became interested in publishing. So, but that, that was, it was, it was because it made me happy. It, it filled my life with happiness to create these characters and these love stories and these happy endings and these healing, intimate relationships. See, and Did I was know? lucky because, I mean, think about how many, I've only been writing eight years. So I came into this where there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of writers. So it was mm-hmm. a lot easier for me to even make that, that decision to actually write because you and so many other writers ahead of me, like pave the way. So it was a good decision to, for me to like, oh yeah, I think I can do this and let's try it. And it worked. So thank you. Well, I did have an interesting, it's one of these, you know, one of those stories that sometimes I say, I probably shouldn't have told that story. I did have (laughs) an interesting experience in the late 1980s. And I'd been writing quite a while by then. I had probably probably four or five completed manuscripts. And I was starting to get really interested in writing. You know, I've been reading a lot and I thought, well, what the heck, you know, maybe I'll see if I can get published. You know, I don't even know why at that point in my life I decided I would do that, but it was a very kind of awkward process at the time because you had to like write a letter and say who you were and what you'd written and what your experience was and what your story was about. And then you might or might not get an answer saying, okay, you know, send your manuscript. So I actually did get a response and everything was, wasn't electronic. It wasn't digital. So I had to go like, and, you know, copy the thing and put it in a box and, and mail it away. Right. And then I'm seeing patients one afternoon in the clinic and my secretary said, you know, so-and-so is on the telephone and, and they had no idea who it was. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So I run back to my office. And so this publisher says to me, well, you know, we've read your book and we, you know, we're, we'd like to publish it, but it's really not very good. Um, right. <laughs> and yeah, and it gets better. And she said, you're really, you know, a mediocre author and chances are you'll never be more than a mediocre author but you know we'll we'll have you work with an editor and I'm like and I said this I not I not you know I said I really appreciate you taking the time to read my manuscript but I have never aspired to mediocrity in my life (laughs) it's not something that I want to do and I was so pissed that when I got home I was so mad that's when I said Chris well you know I know I can do this. And then I wrote Shield of Justice, which is one of my, you know, foundation books for one of my biggest series. And then I never really thought about it after that. It wasn't, it just, you know, it was with this thing that I tried to do and, you know, didn't happen. And I just went along writing my books until another 13 years had passed. So, but anyways. Uh (laughs) So you wrote a bunch of books. I wrote a bunch of books. But then you also founded a publishing company that started out pretty small, but like it's really one of the powerhouses of of lesbian publishing. So how did that happen? Well, the little gap between when I thought about publishing and then I decided, well, screw that. I'll just write books 
is that in the late 1990s, I started writing fan fiction, which I did not write Xena fan fiction. I have nothing against. You were the only one at the time who did. I know. I know. I'm the only lesbian in the entire world who did not watch Xena. So I didn't write Xena fan fiction. I wrote X-Files fan fiction. And through X-Files fan fiction, I discovered an online community of writers. And not only that, I discovered writers who were writing lesbian fiction. And I was just astounded. It was like, wow, really interesting. And the thing that was really interesting is that a lot of it was being written by guys. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. I just thought, found it was unusual. I was part of a group that wrote Scully slash, you know, slashing Scully with, I wrote original characters. Other people, you know, wrote fan fiction with characters. I wrote Scully with my own female characters. And I started posting it online. And it was a really rewarding and interesting experience. And I really liked it. And I realized that I liked sharing my work. Part of its ego. I mean, it's great if you put something out there and somebody goes, oh, I love that chapter. And when are you going to write more? Um, so it's inspiring that way. But it was also just it felt like I was connected to all these people that I never, you know, would never have connected with over something that meant a great deal to me. So I wrote and posted fan fiction for probably two or three years. I have a lot of fan fiction out there. And at the same time, I had eight original novels that I'd written up into that time. And one of the beta readers for me was a librarian. I said to him, I have some original stories that aren't fan fiction. Do you think anybody would be interested in them? And he goes, yeah, I think they would. So I made a very rudimentary website and I put my original fiction on it. And long story short, I was contacted by three publishers almost simultaneously asking if they could publish. Each one wanted a different one of those books. <laughs> and, you know, what did I know? I, I didn't know anything. Right. I didn't know anything. Right. What I did know was I wasn't sure I wanted to be published. I wasn't sure that I wanted anybody to touch my stuff. But it was an adventure and it was it was taking me a place I'd never gone before. So I said yes to all three of them, please. <laughs> and um, they all came out almost simultaneously. One publisher had a very bad business model, which was she thought that the sales from one book would pay for the next book without realizing that you don't get paid anything for six, 12 months and even then it comes in dribs and drabs. So that didn't work very well. Yeah. The other publisher took all the money and ran and nobody got any royalties. Mm -hmm. um, and the third publisher has been in existence for a long time, Regal Crest, mm -hmm. and then has recently just been sold. And Regal Crest ended up publishing about five of my, my of the works that I had already written. Mm -hmm. And in those few years when I was going through all this experience, I was learning a lot about publishing because I don't really like to do anything that I don't really understand completely. And the more I did it, the more interested I became in how the whole thing worked. And it became, I watched my numbers. I'm a number person. So I watched my numbers and it became very apparent to me that the model that was most prevalent at the time had a built-in ceiling. 
that it was very clear. They just mm-hmm. were not going to get past that ceiling. And what I felt was needed was a traditional publishing model that would allow us as queer publishers and queer authors to have all the advantages of traditionally published authors in the mainstream. And what that meant was distribution, that the POD model, which allowed so many new publishers to emerge and to give voice to a lot of authors, was also limiting. And at that time, in particular, it was very hard to get a POD book into a bookstore, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it, things have changed, obviously, but we're talking about 23, 24 years ago now. So what I wanted to do was start a company that would have all the distribution channels available to our works that everybody else had. I felt we needed a seat at the big table. And the only way to do that was to have a traditional publishing model. So one of the very first things I did was look into distribution and how to go about getting our books distributed traditionally. And it turns out at the time, Linda Hill was just forming Bella Distribution, which is not, which is separate from Bella Books. It's a distribution company. And she was looking for people to distribute. So we formed, you know, an association and they still do distribute some of our books. We're just, we've always been distributed by mainstream distributors. Initially it was CDS and then it became Perseus and now it's Ingram, but Bella also distributes us. So anyways, from the beginning, we had a mainstream model. Mm-hmm. So, and that was very important to me. And you said, yeah, it started small. In 2004, there was one publication, Change of Pace, which was mine. In 2005, I incorporated the company in 2004. In 2005, um, the first thing I did was get all my rights back and bring out all of my backlist. And then I signed Kim Baldwin and Allie Valley and Mary Shannon and Gunn Brook and Jane Fletcher that was my next question was who were yeah. the first people you signed? Cause I had a Kim feeling Baldwin. that Gunbrook was one of the first, but I just wasn't sure who the very first was. That's Kim, interesting. Kim Baldwin Hunter's Pursuit was the first, you know, author I signed, but that same year I signed Ronnie Black. I mean, I signed powerhouses mm-hmm. that first year and they're still publishing with me and they've all done, you know, amazingly well. And so within a year, we had expanded our catalog and then every year after in 2007 we started pub- until that time we had been publishing only lesbian fiction in 2007 we started publishing gay fiction a few years later we started publishing ya so we've always been a diverse publisher we don't just publish romance we don't just publish lesbian fiction we don't just publish queer authors but we do only publish queer fiction so that's who we are and that's what we've done. And now our catalog is over 2000 active titles. Very few things, very few titles I've ever published have gone out of print. Almost all the authors, our attrition rate is very low. Almost all the authors we've signed are still with us. I mean, obviously sometimes people stop writing, life happens, they, right. things change, they have kids, whatever. Mm-hmm. But Our model has always been based on a long-term developmental relationship that I didn't have and that I felt what was needed for a successful publishing house was to 
make the authors better, help the authors do whatever it was they needed to do to be better and find all the ways you could to sell their books. So that's, that's what I do. I'd love to ask a question that just popped in my head. So it was not, we, we sent you a list of questions in advance and it was not on that list. And so if you're not comfortable answering, that's fine. I don't remember the questions. I don't worry about <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Even better. Um, so you talked about how like you, you've signed on so many authors and authors who had never published anywhere before, but there's one author that I found really interesting who had published before and that you brought her backlist back into publication. And I was wondering if you're comfortable talking about what led you to bring Lee Lynch into mm. the Bold Strokes family? Well, because it was an honor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because you have to be crazy not to. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, 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 Lee Lynch was one of the, you know, foundational authors of the lesbian movement, as well as being an incredible lesbian activist. And those of us who grew up, you know, at the same time as Lee, pretty much, were reading her as she was writing, I mean, and changing our world. And, you know, Lee is a chronicle of the history of our movement. And, you know, I mean, she is a legend and who wouldn't want to publish her? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd publish anything she wanted to write. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there are just there are some people and some books that must be published. Yeah. Um, and Lee and her work is certainly one of them. Yeah. Are you surprised with how big BSB has become? I mean, does this shock you the success of it? Yes and no. I really did not know at the beginning how things were going to go. You know, it was a very big, you know, personal and life change for myself and my wife, because at the time, well, it was kind of a perfect storm because I was publishing more and I wanted to start this publishing company and I couldn't write and I couldn't practice surgery and run a publishing company. I could do two things full time, but I couldn't do three things full time. And Lee had just finished her postdoc in Philadelphia and was looking for a job. And then she got the job at RPI. Um, she's a professor. She's a neuroscientist. She's a professor of biology at RPI. So we had to move. And my practice was not portable. I mean, you can't move a plastic surgery practice. And I had just started the publishing company. So we decided that I would retire early. We would live on savings because Lee was just starting a new job. We sold a car, we sold our house. We lived in a rented house for nine months until we moved up here. I did not take a salary from the company for two years. I put the money in and I waited to take the money out and I didn't know how it would go. I really didn't. I spent a lot of time figuring out price points, figuring out how much it was gonna to cost to print a book, how much I could sell a book for, what the market would bear what was reasonable to pay authors. And I had no idea where it would go, but I have always tried to make good business decisions. Number one, doesn't help the author if your company goes down the tubes. Right. So I have always tried to make very good business decisions. And I've always tried to make sure that the authors were getting top dollar because it's tough to make a living writing books 
Now, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you write in a niche market or whether you write in the mainstream. Most people don't make a living doing it, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've always held to the same mission, which was to support author growth and development and to produce good books. And I think if we can do that, that's the recipe for success. So I am surprised we have so many authors. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they all, everyone doesn't write it. And we publish about 120 new titles a year. And there's about 80 authors who write those. Not the same 80 authors every year, but some authors write more than one book, as you know. And some authors don't write more than a book a year or maybe sometimes a book or two years. And there's a lot of those authors that aren't writing at all. And then sometimes they'll come back five years later and say, we're publishing one for Tanai Walker soon. And she hasn't published anything in three or four years. And then this is a point in her life where she's writing again. That's exciting. That's great to hear that she's coming back. Yeah. So I want to take a little bit of a turn. Lesbian literature has really, for a long time, was really seen as political. And why do you think that is? When you say for a long time, do you mean a long time ago? Or always. Well, I mean, it's not possibly always. I feel like it's different. Yeah. I mean, I think queer fiction has always been political. Yeah. Because it has been our voice to the rest of the world saying, we are here. This is who we are. This is what we deserve. This is what we want out of life. Um, This is what we are capable of achieving. And I think all of those statements are political. Yes, in the in the 1970s, when when, you know, the country was politicized around war, around race, around gender, around sexuality, there were lots of more, let's say, more essays and more, you know, politically directed works and collections that we don't see as much of today, where many more, it seems like many more people were writing political essays. And I think that's partly because of what was happening in the country. But I think that every time we write a book about our lives and our experience, it's a political statement. I mean, we aren't always writing about the problems that we might see socially or culturally, but they filter into our work. If our characters are living in a real world or any world, they're gonna be dealing with those issues. So in that sense, I think that queer fiction is always political. Mm-hmm. And kind of related to that, my perception as a reader and a reviewer. And so I've been reviewing, I have to do the math based on how old my youngest kid is. <laughs> uh, so I've been reviewing in the space for seven years, probably reading for about a decade. And I've noticed the stories have been changing. And even the stories had been changing kind of up to that point, because in probably the decade before I started reading, so many of the books were like coming out stories. And that's not really the case anymore. And that seemed to kind of align with LGBTQ people fighting for and winning more and more rights, especially in the United States. Politics, unfortunately, seemed to be taking a turn kind of backwards again. And we're having to collectively, you know, start to mobilize again and kind of fight for rights again. Mm -hmm. And given all of that, 
what do you see as the role of queer literature and where do you think we might be moving as a group and where our stories might end up moving? Well, I think that it's not just queer literature. It's all literature reflects the social time to a certain extent, not completely or not exclusively, but it's a reflection of the world around us as we write. Mm -hmm. So in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s, we were just becoming visible, just becoming cohesive as a community. So our works reflected that. The struggle to come out, to find others, to deal with families who were negatively disposed. Not that all, of, not that those problems are gone, and not that we're, we don't still write about them. But the focus, as you say, was much more on what was happening then in the world. And I think that's the role of literature to reflect the world around us, but also to project where we would like the world to go. And I think there's no question if you look at our literature now. We're writing about things that we weren't writing about 10 years ago. We're writing about gender. You know, we're writing trans characters that weren't showing up in our fiction 10 or 15 years ago. They were, but not to the extent that we're seeing characters and those life issues today. We're seeing scenarios that reflect the political issues that we're seeing in the world. And, and I think that is the role of all literature. So certainly it will be the role of ours as well to bring into our stories, whether we're writing science fiction or we're writing romances, they deal with life issues at the core. So, you know, I think that as we as a queer people are challenged, we will be writing about those issues as we go forward. I think right now, diversity inclusion is very important and very evident uh, on the social scene and on the cultural scene. And we're writing and seeing more of that in our fiction. So we're recording this on May 25th, and this will be available for listeners. I think it's going to be towards the end of June. There's been a lot happening. It's been a heavy, heavy year. Are there any types of stories that you draw strength from in difficult times? Are there any types of stories you've been, you've been finding yourself gravitating towards? Well, I'm a romance writer. And we could talk a long time about the romance genre and the, the misinterpretations of it, the strengths of it. But at the core, romance fiction is the story of people's lives. It's the story of the intimate connections that we make with other human beings. And it's hard for me to believe that anyone can't respect a story like that. So for me, I, you know, I read romances because they, I know, obviously, that there's going to be a positive ending, which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, but it also allows me to experience the, the intimacy that we as humans seek and form and give strength to others. So I like to read romances, but I'm a pretty varied reader. You know, I like epic fantasy too. I love epic fantasy. And, you know, I, if there's, if there's not, you know, blood on every other page, it's just not right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not, I'm not just reading warm, fuzzy books. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because 
in epic fantasies, the canvas is large, the evil is large. There is moral ambiguity in that the heroes are not always heroic. So I I think that they're very human. Mm -hmm. And they're very engrossing stories if they're good epic fantasy. So, you know, it's totally on the other end of the spectrum. And I think that there are all kinds of books that we can read that will give us strength and and make us feel better. I want to follow up on the romance thread because, again, a little question popped up in my head. It feels like about two to three times a year, always around Valentine's Day for sure, like you can set your, your clock by it. Uh, there's some kind of a hot take. It's either a tweet or maybe it's uh, a piece that somebody decided to bravely publish on some website about, but why does romance have to have a happy ending? <laughs> what is your reaction? Well, <laughs> when if you it doesn't, that? it's not a romance. I mean, it's pretty simple. A love story doesn't have to have a happy ending. I mean, the obvious one is love story. That might be too old for some listeners, but that's the classic love story that, you know, will tear your heart out. And then, of course, you know, she dies in the end. Thanks very much. But in the romance genre, the genre paradigm leads to a happy ending. And it's as simple as that. If you have a mystery and you don't solve it, then people are going to be really pissed off about that mystery if you have a sci-fi fantasy work and the aliens win and blow up the world then you're probably going to have a few unhappy readers and as a genre the genre dictates that the characters fall in love overcome the obstacles that have kept them apart learn about whatever inside of them is preventing them from making it intimate attachment and they pledge themselves to each other because they love each other and that's the ending now the happy ending has morphed into happy for now to make it perhaps more palatable to contemporary audiences but it's a it's it's really pretty simple if it doesn't have a happy ending it's not a romance see what i'm going to do now we're going to get a clip and it's going to be of that and now every time I see somebody publish their hot take, I'm just going to slide it. To them. <laughs> We're done. We're done with this. Um, okay. Last question. Is there anything you'd like to clearly recommend to our listeners? I generally don't recommend specific titles because there are too many that I love. I would say read a book that you wouldn't ordinarily take off the shelf. Read a blurb and think to yourself, oh, this isn't about me, so I probably won't like it. And try that book because we've been talking a lot about how to represent our entire community, all of us, as diverse as we are, racially diverse, our gender diversity, our sexual diversity, our abledness. How do we speak for our whole community through our literature? And the only way we can do that is for readers to read about experiences that are different than their own. And I think that if we write it and you read it, we can continue to support all of those diverse voices. But if they write it and we publish it and you don't read it, 
we can't keep publishing it. And that's the reality of how the book business works. Yes, we want to have diverse fiction. We want own voices. We want inclusivity. But we need our readers to get on board. And if you read one book that's different than what you usually read about a life that's different than the one you think will connect to yours, that will make a difference. So that's what I would ask, I guess. I'm going to throw an additional plug. Review it when you're done. Yeah, that would really help too. That is all for this episode. Thank you so much, Radcliffe, for joining us. Thank you both for having me. It was great. And thank you, everyone out there, and happy Pride. Yes. Thank you, everyone who listened to this episode. If you enjoyed it and you haven't already subscribed, please make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll get notified whenever we release a new episode. If you have a friend who you think would like the show, please tell them all about it. And if you'd like to support us, we have a link to our Kofi in the show notes, or you can visit Kofi.com slash clearly recommended. Or if you want to connect with us on your favorite social media sites, just search for clearly recommended on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or email us at podcast at clearlyrecommended.com. Goodbye. I do have a funny story about Kim Baldwin. Do you want me to stop recording first or do I keep recording? I mean, this could be an outtake. It's not, it's not anything bad, but so like when I first got on the scene, I mean, I knew nothing. Literally, I didn't know anything. I, I hadn't read very many people and I saw BSB uh, on our website. We had like, there would be a scroll. It had like three books. And then if you went to the website again, another three books would pop up that were either upcoming or whatever. And uh, my book, my very first book, Jolt, was on a slide with C.A. Popovich, uh, The Edge of Awareness, and Kim Baldwin. And so I tagged, I think I ta- I can't remember if it was Facebook or if it was, it was probably Facebook. And I tagged everybody. And Kim was like, I go, oh, look, we're all publishing twins or Twinkies or triplets or whatever. And, and she's like, yeah, um, this isn't my first book. Because <laughs> I, like, I was like, yeah, because I knew that Poppy and I were, it was our first book, and, but it wasn't hers. And I, I didn't even know that. And so she's like, yeah, no, I've been with BSB for a long time now. So now I know since the beginning, I did not know that. So, but yeah. That's a great, yeah, not my first book. Yeah, not my first book, Chris. Okay, sorry. (laughs) All right.